Hello and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, a publication of Citizens Union Foundation. Thanks very much for tuning in here for the show. It is the day after, the day after Election Day 2022. For weeks and months and maybe even more than a year, I've been introducing the show and talking about how long it was until Election Day. And now we, here we are. Uh, it has come. It has gone. There's a few races yet to be called in New York and, and other places around the country, but we know a lot and all the anticipation has mostly come to a head. We're speaking here on Wednesday, November 9th, 2022. And boy, is there a lot to discuss. Quite an election in New York, Governor Kathy Hochul making history, the first woman elected governor of New York. She won a four-year term. Now, it was in an election that was a bit closer than I think most people basically on either side of the aisle thought it would be uh, a number of months ago, but it looked like it was tightening leading up. So it was not a surprise in the end that it was tight, but it was a much tighter margin than prior elections where the Democratic a nominee has won for a number of election cycles, no Republican winning statewide in New York since 2002, when Governor George Pataki won his third term. So a tight election, but Governor Hochul winning, and that's that's all you need to do to govern, um, but winning by a, a fairly slim margin, and then a number of losses for Democrats in swing House seats, uh, a few losses in state Senate seats and state assembly seats. Overall, looking like uh, a solid night for Democrats who mostly run New York, of course, or almost exclusively run New York, uh, but also you know, some interesting uh, trends to look at in terms of the tightness of the governor's race and some of the Republican gains in Long Island, uh, the Hudson Valley, Democrats picking up some different seats in, in other places uh, in the state Senate, mostly balancing out and, and either keeping a supermajority or close to it. So some interesting trends, some cross currents, a lot to break down here. I'm very pleased to be joined on the show by Dr. Basil Smeichel, Jr., a professor and the director of the Public Policy Program and the Roosevelt House Institute for Public Policy at Hunter College. He's also taught previously at Columbia and CUNY, and from 2015 to 2018, he was the executive director of the New York State Democratic Party, so he knows the state and its politics extremely well. He's been a Democratic strategist, a party surrogate and spokesperson. He was a senior aide to Hillary Clinton when she was a U.S. senator from New York, and lots of other political activity and expertise. Basil, thanks for joining me. How are you? I'm doing well, as best as I can be on no sleep, but yes. um, but but I am well. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for joining me. Uh, perfect person to talk with here to talk about what we just saw and what happened. So we'll get into a lot of the specifics, but what are your big one or two takeaways here in New York from what we saw, obviously starting at the top of the ticket, the statewide Democrats all current office holders. Kathy Hochul had never won the office. She obviously ascended to it when Andrew Cuomo resigned a little over a year ago. But all Democrats controlling these statewide seats that were on the ballot, they all won to keep those seats. But as I said, uh, Governor Hochul's margin pretty slim. Um, what, what are some big takeaways on the statewide? Uh, anything else you're seeing? Big picture here. What are you thinking about before we dig into the details? 
Sure. I, you know, the, the, the big picture for me, um, the big takeaway for me is that this margin was uh, probably as close as we had started to see in the polling leading up to the election. Um, but it's still unnerving to see it be as close. Um, because, you know, particularly for someone who, uh, you know, when I, particularly when I was running the party, I traveled all over the state, and I did a lot of that traveling with Kathy Hochul. So I've seen her on the, on the trail. I've seen her do retail politics. So I know um, uh, she's great at talking about policy and was a great cheerleader for the, the, the state, for the party, for the administration, uh, when she served as attorney governor under Cuomo. Um so the, 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 it was it was it was unnerving to see that it came that the race was this close, and that there were certain parts of the campaign that, in talking to other people, particularly um, uh, folks who've been involved with party politics in some way, shape, or form over the years, wondering sort of what the party itself, the apparatus, is doing or not doing um, to have to have gotten it to this place. Um, so that's sort of the first thing. Um, and the, the second thing is, is related, which is the coattail issue, right? Do, um, if, if her coattails aren't or weren't what they could have been or should have been, thinking about the impact on the, on the races below, what does that mean for, this, for the state Senate, for the Assembly? Could we lose the supermajority? How does that affect our policymaking? Um, and then also, just a, just a, uh, this sort of notion that we work that I sort of woke up with this morning that you know this solidly blue state is seemingly a lot more purple and um, yeah. and um, how did that how did that happen and I think about institutions I think about um, I think about systems I think about the people uh, that 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 make up this party you know having those. 300 plus stakeholders who are the former state committee members when I ran the party and thinking about who the who who remains, who's new to the 62 county chairs, what they're thinking and working with right now, and what does that mean for the for the what it means to be a Democrat uh, in New York going forward, and how how strange it is that that the state may very well contribute to. Um, the, the Democrats nationally losing the House. That's not a position I thought we would be in. Um, uh, but though the polling leading up to, to now suggested that that was going to be the, the outcome. So those are sort of the big pieces. But I think if I were to name one of them, it was uh, name one that stands out the most to me and that resonates the most is the, the sense that um, uh, we, we live in a blue state that is at least from last night's results, looking like it's becoming more purple. Right. It's interesting. It, it seems like some of the trend lines are moving from deeper blue to to somewhat purple. Again, it 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 really depends. I think how you look at it. You yeah. have still all of the statewide seats held by Democrats. You have the either super majorities or near super majorities in the two houses of the state legislature. You're seeing. Uh, what appears to be much more of a split in the House delegation. And some of that comes back to the redistricting that just happened, of course. So uh, Democrats will still hold a majority of the of the state's House seats. But uh, some interesting trends there and just and just the narrowing of the of the margin. We saw 
also a little bit of this in some of the city, New York City elections that happened last year, a couple of city council districts flipping to Republicans. So there, there's definitely some interesting little currents there. Um, so say say more about some of what you were talking about there in terms of how the party, the Democratic Party in New York is and isn't um succeeding isn't isn't functioning well what what is the party supposed to be doing that is it isn't necessarily doing that well um is your assessment of some of the challenges that are apparent here related to um the sort of nitty-gritty of what it means to really build and run a a, a statewide party in new york is it about messaging is it good yeah go ahead yeah no i think it's i, th- <laughs> I think it's all of those things all but, the, but, the, but the but the apparatus the, the the structure is supposed to be able to support all of those functions right and that's that's what you know so some of my friends we talk about whether or not we actually is is the party too decentralized do we need more of a centralized structure meaning we need a a, a strong sort of old school party leader um to and and in a way that that you know and i know we've come away from that you know a generation ago or less than um but you know in some ways um you know when you when when i think about um, you know, when I came into party politics in the state, um, this is going back to the 90s, um, you know, Judith Hope and then Denny Farrell um, later on, you had a very, you know, strong central chair who, um, uh, you know, really worked very closely with the county committees, the county organizations. Um, and, you know, there were other organizations like COBE, the Council of Black Elected Democrats, all of these organizations where people would meet and really talk and really set an agenda. And what has become clear, and you see this mostly with national elections, right, that Republicans in many ways vote like like in in the UK as you would for a parliamentary election. It's not so much the candidate as it is the agenda. The candidate's just sort of a vehicle and a vessel. And mm-hmm. in some respects, in some respects, you know, Democrats, I think, have to adopt that mindset a little bit, that we really do have to start to develop what is our statewide agenda, right? What is our what is our what is our city agenda? I mean you get that a little bit from Mayor, you know, Mayor Adams because he ran on the issue of crime and bringing crime down and 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 you know we've whether you think he's successful at that or not is another story but there certainly is an attempt to address that issue um and but but that's not an agenda sort of you know bringing bringing party leadership together to craft an agenda that is a little bit separate from whoever might hold the office or that's exactly right that's exactly right that's exactly right. And so, you know, what, what, how do we talk to these communities about really and then selling our agenda? And I think that is that, that is that sort of piece that I look at and say, this is where the Republicans, what they were doing that we are not doing, which is creating this broad agenda that even if we can make decisions about who we like more in our primary process, once we get to a general election, we've all got to be in lockstep and get our entire apparatus on lockstep to be able to sell and promote that agenda to the voter, which I think in in many cases was sort of, it, it didn't seem to, to, to gel here. Now, look, I, I know Jay Jacobs and have worked with him, the current ED of the party, my predecessor, uh, my successor, I should say, um, uh, I, I know them, I've worked with them. So I don't, and I don't look to, the, to any specific people as saying that, 
it's their fault. I don't point fingers in that regard, and I, and I definitely don't want to get down to go down that path. I think my criticism mostly is the same criticism I'd have with national Democrats as well, which is that, um, you know, we, 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 you know, after two, and this is true really for the state party too, but going back to 2006, you know, when, you know, when, when Pataki's out of office and you're bringing in a, a Elliot Spitzer and you've got a Chuck Schumer and you really do, and, and Hillary's still um, a U.S. senator, that there seems to be a lot more cohesion around sort of message and agenda. And it almost as though that infrastructure just kind of essentially fell apart. And that's partly true also in the national side. Just to make that connection a little, to strengthen that connection, if you think about it, when Obama was president, you know, and I talked about this all the time, the Democrats lost a thousand state legislative seats across the country. That happened in part because that structure was not well funded. So when I became ED and I met with leaders across the state that had my title and my position across the country with my title, my position, um, the biggest complaint was that state parties had no money that didn't have any money to do the work that parties do, which is communicate directly with the voter, be able to work the rest of the ticket and elevate the party from the bottom of the ticket upward. Um, and I think when you talk to voters about what happened yesterday, one of the big points that comes to, that, that comes up is, hey, I never got a piece of mail. You know, mm -hmm. and it's interesting because when you actually get mail, you probably don't read it. But, mm -hmm. And we know that. But when you but you like to get mail because it's like, OK, they thought about me because when you miss it, when you don't get it, you really miss it. And and um, and that's sort of what's happening. It's just yeah. a sign that, that the campaign is paying attention to you. I was, you know, I was laughing a little bit about that. I wanted to ask you about that because I was yeah. laughing as I saw people on Twitter talking about this. It's like, okay, the the most like the most engaged, you know, New York Democrats who are a hundred percent going to vote are are complaining that they haven't gotten a piece of mail from the right. Democratic Party, and I'm going. I don't, do you really need it? You know, it was reminding me of when Bill de Blasio won in 2013 and he didn't no. do direct mail. He, he right. did other things, but, um, uh, I don't know. I, I wanted to it ask you about what, what that should look like. And if, if there was a seeming gap in communication from some combination of the state party and the Hochul campaign where, it was very obvious that in the last days of the campaign, they were like, oh, we got to kick this into another gear and get out the base. Right. But, but maybe that, I don't know, maybe that was an okay plan all along. I'm not sure I want yeah, I, well, a diagnosis on what happened here because for a five point margin, when yeah. Andrew Cuomo won three straight elections by, you know, uh, I don't know what it was. Tw if, I don't have it in front of me, but like 30, no, 14 and yeah. 23 or something Double like digits. that. Double yeah. Digits. Yeah. Uh, you know, so what so what so what happened here um in terms wish, of yeah, how that played out and the larger picture? I wish I I wish I knew. I mean it could have been a, a strategy similar to the the Bosnia strategy, just not to mail and people say, Well, the, nobody reads mail, mail doesn't count. But when you don't get it, you notice it. But the difference is in twenty thirteen. And this is a, this is sort of and I made I think I made this point the other day that in twenty thirteen you know, de Blasio had for the good chunk of his campaign essentially been running against Bloomberg, particularly on the issue of stop and frisk. So the culmination of all of that narrative and messaging was the Dante ad done by my good friend, John Del Fugato. So people point to the ad as that pivotal moment, but the truth is that it was the arc of that narrative that culminated in that really good ad 
that really solidified, you know, the the, the message that de Blasio was trying to get across to the voter and personalized it, humanized it with, with his son in that ad. So even if you didn't get the mail, that that commercial did everything that it needed to do. That, and that and then, and it made you not think about the fact that you didn't really get a piece of mail. Mm-hmm. But I think it, it's so it's it's the absence of that kind of moment, that narrative, that arc of, of storytelling that I think was missing from the race that voters really missed. So they were trying to hang on to something that could suggest to them that, yes, there is a race out here that we're thinking about you as the voter, we're talking to you as a voter. Um, and, I, and, and I think that's for the voter what they didn't, what they were trying to get, which they probably got towards the end in a stronger, in a stronger presentation by the governor herself and the activity we saw with you know, folks coming into campaign in Western New York. Sure. In Brooklyn and so on. Do you, do you think Democrats were sort of just a little bit asleep at the switch because of how all those, you know, last several string of gubernatorial races have gone and they just haven't been close? And um, there was just a little bit of, of taking things for granted, even though it was obviously there were a lot of uh, there was a lot of wind at Republicans back on a number of issues and it being the first midterm year of a Democratic president. Uh, Governor Hochul never having won the seat herself and being from, you know, Western New York, mm-hmm. uh, a variety of things that would make you think, I don't know why they would be asleep at the switch, but do you think there was a little bit of that complacency at play or what? what's your sort of diagnosis about yeah. why some of this came together only seemingly at the last minute and it was still a, a five point uh, margin here? Um, I may, it's possible that part of it could have been an, uh, a reliance on um, on reproductive rights as a mobilizing force, and it, and it was, um, but which I think is then part of a bigger problem. And pro- and, and I and I have to preface what I'm about to say by making the point that the frustration that's in my voice is is me being a black man in New York being frustrated and scared and concerned, not just for you know what I'm what my you know, what the life for, my, for me and my family and my friends might be like. But, you know, I think about the country and where we are and I get nervous and I get concerned. And I know a lot of my friends and colleagues feel very similarly. So there's a sense of urgency that I think a lot of us have that maybe the party didn't realize that we have or should have, given that, you know, we're active in this party, in particular as a black voter, we're going to vote anyway, right? So yeah, we we know we have good candidates. And I think that might be the one issue that locally is the same nationally. Like we do have confidence that our candidates are good candidates, but there might also be, uh, uh, there might be, uh, in, to some extent, uh, folks are overlooking the work that's being done on the right to sort of pick apart traditional democratic coalition. So in, you know, after Trump, remember correctly, in as much as we talked about Trump between 2016 and 2020, um, Bronx voters actually, in many respects, particularly Bronx Latino voters, actually vote in higher numbers for him in 2020. What's happening there, right? Who's talking to them? Who's, who, are they listening, who are they talking to that that is not on our side? Right? How are they not hearing from us, or are they hearing just from the other side? If you if you if you think about, and then by the way, Zeldin campaigns I think in the last weekend in the Bronx among Bronx mm-hmm. Latino clergy, 
right? Um, sometime before that, he goes to talk to Caribbean uh, Caribbean uh, New Yorkers um, or, uh, during the campaign, right? He stumps with them. And yeah, so, so why is it that, why? It, what it seems as though is that even if Republicans are having, um, uh, in my view, a wrong policy conversation with these, with different constituencies, they are having a nuanced one with those constituencies. And I think that was the piece that was missing on the Democratic side. We talk about the fact that the Black community is not monolithic, but are we really talking to them as that non-monolithic complex voter? Mm -hmm. We don't. And I think the same is true for the Latino community as well. And when you look at what, you know, when I came into politics, I got I got invested because of Jesse Jackson in 84 and 88, saying that the Democratic Party needed to be more responsive to people that look like him. That's what inspired me to get involved. But the coalition that pulled those folks together, that rainbow coalition that got Bill Clinton elected, who was my first presidential vote, that seems to have frayed. And I think one of the questions that I have is, what is that coalition for this generation now? Because mm -hmm. I think in some ways we were leaning on that old one. And I don't know that there's been a recasting of a new coalition, if, if there needs to be. But I, but I think there does. But I don't know that we really, as Democrats, really know what that coalition looks like. It's a lot of interesting things you just said and other things I want to ask you about. Uh, so... <laughs> You know, it does seem like there's realignment. There's been a little bit of, you know, uh, I think research on this and um, and writing on this that that there's more and more realignment along educational mm -hmm. attainment levels, uh, and and that possibly a play here. But but some of that also seems to speak to the idea that uh, Democrats, especially, have left this opening in a lot of communities about not not really addressing and talking about what they're doing on a more granular level about safety, certainly, but about basics around, you know, running small businesses, around the quality of education. Um, obviously, cost of living became, you know, a huge issue in this election. That's a little bit harder to control at the local or even state level, but I don't think that Democrats starting at the top of the ticket really made a any type of real effort to to message what they are doing in new york around um just making it easier to live financially in new york right. uh, I, I was sort of waiting I, I don't know i don't know that this would have been good politics but for example i was i was waiting for a, uh, some sort of kathy hochel economic policy that would be sort of here's what i want to do if i'm if you give me this next four years and it just never came um, yeah. I don't, I don't know, you know, I haven't thought about what that should have been or what it would have been. The, you know, one of the only things that comes to mind is it actually now has been a little while since the minimum wage went up and because cost of living has increased, maybe that, maybe there's something there, not that that necessarily would, would sell well with certain groups who are, who are worried about paying their bills as, as small business owners. But, um, it, it seems like there's a real gap in, even when the policies are there sometimes. Governor Hochul has done a lot, for example, on childcare, but I don't yeah. know that she talked about it during the campaign. So there seems to be a real a real gap there. And and that was one thing that was glaring to me. I don't know if it was as glaring to you that it wasn't yeah. even on public safety. She's done a lot. She didn't really talk That's about it. We just didn't know, she didn't talk about it. I mean, I, I was I've been I've been screaming about that because you know she took the political risk to bring the 
the, the legislature back to talk about bail reform, even though the research says that bail reform in and of itself is not not what it's what it's not what's contributing to the increase in crime. Mm-hmm. But she did what she 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 got it took the cue from the mayor. She brought the the legislature back. She they tweaked it, and we didn't even she didn't even get to talk about it. Let's connect that nationally. You had a candidate like Val Demings, the chief of police. Mm-hmm. Why isn't she not being elevated to talk about crime nationally where Democrats are getting killed by crime by Republicans? They're ceding ground to Republicans on these issues that we actually have worked on and have talking points around. Let's talk, let's talk about the, um, the uh, you know, jobs and, and uh, job opportunities, right? And let's tie that into the point I was making about our communities being complex. One of the things that I talk to my students about is when they sort of raise you know, the ideas of Bernie Sanders and some of the stuff that he talked about on his campaign. And one of the things that used to come out a lot uh, when he was running in both of those presidential campaigns is why African-Americans didn't really support him as much as, you know, some may have thought. And I said, well, you know, the community is complex, not monolithic, right? I said, just take this issue about corporate taxation. And, you know, Bernie is sometimes seen as being anti-corporate. Do you realize that in the Black community, many of our leaders and heroes are people who've done well in the private sector? So it's not like Black people hate rich people. We don't. We want to be rich, too. We just don't want the system to be rigged. If when I grew up and you would go to any black household, there was a jet magazine on the table. And in that magazine is always a section of the African-Americans who are rising in corporate America. Part of what we part of what is important in the community is not just fighting against systems that are inherently racist. It's also what's also important is being in places not previously designed for us and excelling in those in those areas, in those spaces. So when you have someone like you know, so when you take, let's say, for to move that forward, you have all of what's happening with LaGuardia and JFK. And I know that they've done some something around this. But have you gone out there and talked about the MWBE opportunities for black and Latino businesses, women owned businesses to take advantage of uh, of what's happening at the airport? And why is that important? Because in the city of Atlanta, the majority of the black middle class that is there got their start because Maynard Jackson, when he was mayor, African-American mayor, built that airport, that wonderful brand, that bright, shiny airport in Atlanta. A lot of the African-Americans in Atlanta were getting contracts as a result of that, helped build the black middle class down there. We could have had that version, a version of that for New York. I know people think about it and, and talk about it, but how, how come we weren't able to amplify that on this campaign? Do you realize the power of that? And so it's things like that that sort of frustrate me because the opportunities are there. They just didn't materialize. Mm. Seem to be, uh, again, this goes back to messaging. It goes back to the type of campaign that the governor was running, which was mostly sort of this Rose Garden campaign of Mm. raise a lot of money, spend a lot of money on TV ads and, you know, hopefully sort of ignoring her opponent will will make it all just sort of coast to victory and then realizing that that wasn't really working out and and kicking into a different gear. But when you kick it into a different gear in the last couple of weeks, there's only so many events you can do and and so many, um, you know, uh, accomplishments you can highlight or whatever it might be. I think there's a little something here that's interesting about this concept. And I'm interested in your perspective on this about the sort of um, 
you know, go everywhere, appear everywhere, run aggressively everywhere. Now that's a lot easier to do when you're an underdog. It's riskier maybe to do when you're the favorite, but it seems to me that in this day and age with some of the trends that you were talking about, about, you know, certain uh, groups and communities moving more towards Republicans from Democrats, especially uh, Latinos, Asians, um, uh, there, that there's there's this question of are Democrats and Democratic leaders still sort of willing and able to go everywhere and make a convincing case in virtually every community? Um, and it seemed like that wasn't happening while it, while Lee Zeldin was very much doing that. And he was doing yeah. it aggressively since April of 2021 when he launched his campaign, which I think is sort of an under the radar factor here is that he's been running aggressively for this seat for well over a year and a half. And Governor Hochul basically campaigned for two, two weeks. Um, right. And I think and I <laughs> and I think but I, and I think that's sort of a that's sort of an important point to make that, you know, she she took this job in a way that, you know, is not ideal, right? And the voters, even though she was lieutenant governor and has been on the ballot statewide, voters still really did not know her. And it, it, she needed to make up ground and message and figure out what would resonate with the voters all at the same time. And that was just going to be difficult. And I should say that. What's mm -hmm. also interesting, it's a really interesting dynamic. A lot of times I don't talk to people about what I do so I can hear their unfiltered opinions. But then there are other people that know exactly what I do and spend time and pull me aside to talk to me and share their opinion. That includes the super of the building next to me. And, you know, I always I like to tell stories through other people um, and, and elevate their narratives. And uh, what's interesting about this gentleman, he's vested in, and he says, hey, I see you. I know that you care about Kathy and you want me to vote for her, but I'm not so sure that I, I can. And I said, why? He said, because I don't know. There's just something about her. And I said, well, who do you like? He's like, I like Andrew. And I was like, okay, well, what did you like about Andrew? Well, he did a lot for me. Well, what exactly did he do for you? And he couldn't name it. But what he did say was that when he was on TV during the pandemic and he was America's governor, the same way Rudy had been America's mayor around 9-11, that he felt that El Cuomo came across with a power and a forcefulness and an authoritativeness that resonated with him. Now, he said that he did not see that in Kathy. Now, some of that is gendered, right? Some of that is just a little sexism and misogyny. It's certainly there and it's present. Um, but at the same time, Kathy did not really have the opportunity to, to be that for the voter in the state of New York. Although she could be down the road, she didn't have that opportunity. She was sort of being constant. She was juxtaposed with that. And that was just always going to be really difficult. But operationally, I think what that means, therefore, is that you run like you're behind. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Zelda knew he was behind and that's how he ran. She needed, even though she was ahead and assistant sitting governor, you run like you're behind um, because it also gives a signal to the voter that you're hungry and you want it. And I'm not saying she didn't, but I'm saying with a lot of opinions, built in opinions about how you should run, not just as an incumbent, as somebody we really, really don't know. And as a woman, rightly or wrongly, those those stereotypes are there and you just have to run with those in mind so that you know to be able to tackle them, beat them, even destroy them head on. Mm -hmm. um, and I think all of that uh, led to a sort of frustration that the voter wasn't seeing enough of it. 
you know, I, I'm going to talk to more people who who know the details intimately on this, but my sense is that that's the kind of campaign that she would want to run, would embrace. And I think she got some some bad advice to yeah. to not do that. I don't know if that's the case. I want to look into it more and talk to more people and talk to her uh, herself when she comes up for air for some interviews. But um, you know, that's that's the kind of thing she says she she is and believes in and and acts like and always thinks of herself as the underdog. So I'm curious to to know yeah. what happened there. And I've, uh, I, I I traveled the whole state with her, and I I've seen mm-hmm. it in action. She's great on stuff. She's a great retail sure. policy show. So yeah, while I only have you for two more minutes here, um, do you, is there anything else you'd note about why? Democrats had a much worse night in New York than basically anywhere else in the country. What what was different here, do you think? Is it because the pandemic was so rough here and there's so many frustrations about, uh, you know, sort of just every this like built up anger around that when and then you plus you add in the increase in crime and plus you add in the inflation and, and you have a, a, you know, a first time Democrat at the top of the ticket on the ballot. But is there is there anything else? Because. Democrats, you know, Michigan and and other places did much better than in New York. Well, you know, I think, listen, I think um, not having a statewide, a statewide elected in 20 years, Republicans not having somebody elected statewide in 20 years. And the influence of Trumpism or the remnants thereof in New York. Um, and I, I think there was really an appetite for it. Maybe not in the same way that there is for DeSantis or a Carrie Lake, for example. But if you think about it, Lee Zeldin is an election denier, and he came within five points of beating Kathy Cole. I mean, that's how I think about it. That is that is real. And so you have to think that there is a, a more of an appetite for that kind of thinking in New York than perhaps we previously thought. Um, and, and I, I, I also feel it, it, it would be, I would be remiss if I didn't say, and I think you touched on it earlier, that, that the way that these, these districts ultimately were drawn really did damage. And we started to see after the first sort of round of, um, of tear it up, we do it, that this was going to come back to haunt us. And I think I can't overstate or is it understate i can't overstate Overstate. or overestimate i can't how how disruptive that that chaos has been to um has has been to the sort of shape of 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 the uh, of the outcomes the fact that you had amon dare jones is a great member of congress having to leave um, uh, good travel, whatever, whatever, 10 miles, 20 miles south to run in a district he didn't know and didn't live in. I mean, tells you a lot about how screwed up that whole process was and what it would do for the state. And I, and I think that had a lot to do with it. Well, you teased into something we don't have time to discuss, unfortunately. I got to let you go. We didn't even get to the Sean Patrick Maloney situation yeah. and so forth, but we got to some surrounding factors. Uh, Basil Smichael uh, Jr., Really appreciate the time. Thanks for joining me to chat some of this over. Let's talk more down the line and and discuss uh, you know where Democrats go from here and the and the political playing field in New York as uh, this election becomes more in the rearview mirror. And now Governor Hochul has four years and uh, and you know there's a lot of new dynamics on the on the table here in New York. But but thanks very much for the time today. I look forward to it. Thank you so much.
All right, take care. 